Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful and firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Amen. Love it. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, we're going to start the uh, GoFundMe for Brittany Reads the Bible. It'll be amazing. If, if I could read the Bible like that, I would just read it out loud all the time. Brittany, thank you. Um, hey, so if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really thankful that you guys are here. I want to take just a second and thank God for my dear friend, Donnie Griggs, that's here. Donnie's one of my best friends in the whole world, and uh, he's the lead pastor of a church that we do a lot of partnership with to plant churches and train leaders. And I just love you, man. I'm, I'm glad you're here. And every time you're in OKC, we're a better place for it. So thanks for being here. Um, I'm going to take a second and pray for you guys and ask you to pray for me. We've got hard work to do together today. So this is a moment where we need the presence of God to help us to be attentive, awake, alert, listening. And uh, today, as I was thinking about the response corporately to a message like this, I was reminded of Jesus's parable about the father and two sons. He tells this story about two sons and the father comes to his boys and he gives them both instruction. And he speaks to the first son, and the first son says, yes, sir. And then he walks out of the room and completely ignores everything the father said. (laughs) And then there's a second son, and the father gives him instruction, and that son says, no way, I'm not doing it. He gets his back up, and he pushes back, and then he walks out of the room with his father, and he thinks about it, and he goes and does what the father said. And I just want to tell you, man, like... I have deep love and respect for the kind of culture we have here where we open God's word and we talk about hard things. And it's a safe place for you to have an initial response of pushback. And my prayer and my desire for you is that you would simply test what's said in this pulpit with God's word. And even if your initial response is resistance and pushback, that doesn't disqualify you from obeying your father. Like what what I'm really concerned about is the way in which we could hear God's word and not take it seriously and say, yes, sir, and do nothing with it. So will you pray with me? I'm going to pray for you and please pray for me as we open his word. Father, I love these men and these women and my love for them is so tiny and anemic compared to your love. Your love is strong. Your love is stronger than the grave Your love is relentless. Your love is the source of your discipline for sons and daughters. Your love drives you to pursue us in Jesus. Your love is pointed to on every page of scripture that reveals your son. And we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you are here among us. We ask that you would do everything that you have in your heart to do. Help us to hear you, to be with you, to receive you, and to be shaped by you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So let, let me tell you what we're doing for three weeks. For three weeks, we're taking Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 around masculine virtue. And we're talking about what does it look like to be men that are increasingly shaped to look like Jesus. Now, with a topic like this that's this controversial, 
it is really dangerous to not do a lot of introductory work on the front end of every sermon. Last week, we opened God's word, and I did my best to give you a nuanced understanding of why this matters. We talked about the heart of God, and we talked about just why we would receive God's word to men in the presence of both men and women. Now, I want to say up front today, I can't reintroduce this sermon every single week. We've got too much work to do. So if you weren't here last Sunday, and if your initial response is, why on earth would we even talk about this? I would just plead with you to go back, listen to last week's sermon, and engage in a community group. Talk about it with brothers and sisters, and if you need to get with a pastor, we'd love to sit down and talk with you. Now, with that in mind, let me tell you what we did last week briefly. We started with Paul's instruction to men to be watchful and to stand firm in the faith. And we talked about two great watchmen. The first watchman, Adam, that failed to protect and provide. And the second watchman, Jesus, who gave his life to stand on the wall and fight for God's people. We then talked about how men are called, as we follow Jesus, to engage in struggle as watchmen on the wall against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then we talked about how impossible that work is without being rooted and grounded in the faith once for all delivered that we stand on the solid ground of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the most important topic in all three, and that is Paul's exhortation to let all that we do be done in love. There is no hope of recapturing redeemed masculinity until men encounter the love of their father through the finished work of Jesus and live a life shaped by that love live a life being conduits of that love. So I hope you're here next week as we talk about that. Now, this week, we get to talk about his instruction in the middle. Paul is going to say, act like men. Act like men. Be strong. And the question that we have to start with today is, why doesn't Paul just encourage us to act like people? It's true that men and women have loads in common. Both men and women are image bearers of the Most High God. Men and women are equal in value, dignity, and worth. And if you've trusted in Jesus, whether you're a man or you're a woman, the Bible is really clear that men and women are equal heirs of the promises of life in Jesus. We're both sons and daughters of the living God by grace through faith in Christ. Both men and women in the Bible are called to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. That's not a guy thing or a girl thing. To grow in love in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The theological virtues are for men and women, that we're to grow to be people of faith, hope, and love. And both men and women need to grow in cultivating just basic Christian character, things like honesty. We need honest men, and we need honest women. Can I get an amen? However, I want you to understand that there are powerful, powerful masculine and feminine virtues, and there are hideous masculine and feminine vices. And to follow Jesus is to follow him into the renovation and the restoration of the totality of our being, and that includes our sexuality. To be men and to be women that follow Jesus is to have our very essence as men and women that will be men and women for all eternity conformed to the image of Jesus. 
And this is really hard for us, and I felt the tension in conversations throughout the last week. It's really hard for us because for reasons that are both good and bad, reasons that are compassionate and reasons that are a bit myopic and blind, we spend a lot of time obsessing over the fringes and the, expect- and the, and the exceptions. We spend a lot of time obsessing over the fringes and exceptions. So much so that we often miss the weight and the wisdom of that which is common and obvious. The last two Sundays in Confession and Assurance, we've had men confess what are typically male sins, ways in which we've objectified women, abused women, neglected our responsibility as men for the blessing of women. We've asked women to confess for the last two weeks ways in which they as women sin against God and sin against men. And through the course of the last two weeks, we've had many objections. Isn't it sexist to talk about male sins and female sins? Why not just talk about people sins? And though I understand that, what I want you to see is that the Bible is specific about ways in which men and women both need to repent. The Bible doesn't warn men about nagging their wives. And the Bible doesn't warn women about being heavy-handed with their husbands. Now, again, I'm not naive. I wasn't born yesterday. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years. And in the course of 18 years of being the lead pastor of this church, I have seen men that nag their wives. And I have had to engage a few times in the last 18 years to intervene in the case of women that were violent and abusive to their husbands. But nonetheless, in the common grounds sense of what the Bible instructs, we're invited into reality. In addition, the Bible doesn't warn men about immodesty or, about, or, or warn women about provoking their children to anger. Now, it is possible for men to be immodest. Uh, we've had a few worship leaders on our staff, and we've had to talk to them about not having their shirt buttoned down to their navel. I won't name any names. You can use your imagination. But, but track with me. When the Bible gives specific warnings and exhortations to men and women, it's naming things that are possible virtues and likely vices that are common, that are common. In our text today, what Paul is doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is calling men to courage and to strength. When Paul said, act like men, that would have been a phrase that all people in the ancient world would have understood. Jewish people would have understood it. Greeks would have understood it. Romans would have understood it. To say, act like men, is to exhort men to courage. And to call men to strength is to invite them into the kind of resilience that puts courage into action. What I want you to see today is, of course, of course, godly women will need courage and strength. Of course they will. And there's ways in which, there's ways in which we see examples throughout scripture of amazing, mighty, feminine courage and strength. Over the course of the next year, we're going to do the same thing for ladies that we're doing for this three-week series. We're going to talk about feminine virtues. We're going to talk about following Jesus with our femininity. And it's true that there's moments where God raises up a woman like a JL who righteously had to put a tent spike through the temple of an evil dictator. 
And it's true that there's moments where the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians and tells them that he was gentle like a nursing mom among them. But when Paul talks in this text about courage and about strength, what we find is that courage and strength are baseline. They're baseline fundamentals to masculine virtue. There's a lot more than what, there's a lot more we could say about being good men than courage and strength. But listen to me, there's never less that we could say to men than exhorting them to courage and strength. God's design for manhood makes no sense whatsoever apart from what one commentator called sturdy piety, the duty of sacrificial courage and godly strength. And the spirit of God in Jesus is at work to call men to cultivate moral courage in which we love and serve our church and our families by doing the right thing even when it's costly. He's calling men to theological courage, to care about that which is true even more than caring about feelings. Now, we're not anti-feelings. God gave us our feelings, and every feeling you have is an invitation from God. Feelings can lead us to dark places, or they can lead us to beautiful places. But theological courage is having the strength to realize that based on feelings, we have no freedom to redact God's word or to create a God in our image. That which is true and that which is real is always more important than that which we feel. God is calling men to cultivate relational courage, to operate in our relationships as men of Jesus, that love and forgive and bless and move towards tension and at times even stand with fortitude resisting evil. And, and though we live in a culture where we don't see this as a necessity, to be a godly man is to also cultivate physical courage. That doesn't mean that you have to have a certain amount of weight on your bench press to be a man. What it means is we're all called to discipline our bodies and bring them into submission to Jesus. And what we're going to see is that when God speaks to men about courage, he's directing that courage outward for the blessing and benefit of others. And strength connected to courage is the resilience that we need to put courage into action. Strength is the load-bearing weight, the load-bearing weight of being a man who takes responsibility. A man who takes responsibility for himself, for his church, for his wife, for his kids, and for God's mission in the world. Strength is built under resistance. My son and I were training for a marathon last year, trying to help him get ready for what he felt called to do in the military, and we started up in the miles too fast. He went from doing sports that didn't include a lot of running to training for the marathon, and the day that we hit our first 13-mile run, his legs started, hurt, started hurting. Uh, I teased him and told him it probably wasn't that bad, it lasted for two weeks. We got an x-ray. He broke his leg. Okay, that's a picture of how strength is cultivated. It starts small. It starts with little things. It's built over time. Both courage and responsibility are essential if men are going to grow up into our head who is Jesus. Read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Now, I want to be really clear here because sometimes when we talk about strength and courage, we think about ridiculous caricatures. Let me give you the example of two men that I knew in the last 10 years. One man looked like an action figure. 
It's the most jacked human being I've ever known in my entire life. Um, this guy was about 6'4". He walked around at 240. Uh, he, he fought in the ring, and he would drop weight to 205. He was an intimidating, frightening human being. This was a guy that had the kind of abs, not the normal abs that fit guys have, but like the weird, creepy abs where there's even abs down here. I I don't even understand that anatomically, but evidently there's even abs down here, and this guy had him. He was a monster, and I remember one time sparring with this guy where he got on top of me. He was elbowing me in the face, and I remember thinking, it is time for me to take up a different hobby. I'm going to start running, doing pottery, reading more books, because this sucks. (laughs) Now, listen, that guy, as much as I loved him, that guy, in all of his imposing physical presence, that was a guy that couldn't, he couldn't hold down a job. And he was a guy whose wife was constantly looking for male attention elsewhere because he was so not present. And all that physical strength became in some ways a show to hide the fact that he didn't have the kind of virtue that the Bible talks about as true courage and strength. I, I know another guy who because of a disability has never been able to pick up his kids. His wife opens jars for him. She opens the door for him when they go to a restaurant. And yet that man in the midst of a body that's frail is one of the most courageous men I've ever met who has loved his wife so well and empowered her so deeply that she's running hard after God, fulfilling her calling, and his kids are like a healthy olive vine growing at his table, flourishing and enjoying life. Okay, when we talk about courage and strength, we're not talking about a caricature. We're talking about something that's embodied in Jesus as our Savior and that is to be embodied in men as lesser saviors. There's a fantastic book that I would recommend to you by a guy named William Mauser called Five Aspects of Men. And one of the five aspects of men is to see Jesus as the capital S Savior calling men to do the work of lowercase s saving. What we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus' Savior confronted evil. He confronted the evil that no man can confront without him. He confronted the evil of sin through his death. He confronted the evil of Satan in the grave and in his resurrection, and he confronted the evil of death. And he confronted that evil motivated by love for his beloved who is in danger. And Jesus confronted that evil for the benefit of his beloved at great cost to himself. And what we find in scripture, when the Bible talks about how men are to love their wives in Ephesians chapter five, what it means to cultivate godly character as men elsewhere in the New Testament, we find that men also are to follow Jesus in lovingly confronting evil for the blessing of the beloved with great sacrifice to ourselves. And if that melts your brain, just spend some time this week in Ephesians chapter five. Think about the heart of what Paul is getting at. So today, here's what I want to do. I want you to take your Bible and flip over to the Old Testament to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is this really interesting place where we see the Bible do work that no other piece, that no other piece of writing in the history of the world has been able to do. The Bible as God's beautiful self-disclosure invites men into two things that we need badly. Men and boys need stories and men and boys need models. We need stories and we need models. We need stories because stories shape our imagination. Stories help us to see the epic and the archetypal. 
Stories help us to see the cosmic struggle that's going on all around us. This is why it's a good thing. It's a good thing for both boys and girls, but boys in particular, to, be, to read books like The Lord of the Rings, to see the struggle and the risk, the cosmic sacrifice that needed to be saved, that needed to be exercised to save Middle Earth. We need that. That shapes courage and imagination. But listen, without models, without models of real flesh and blood people fleshing out obedience to God in ordinary life, we'll become idealists. We'll become people that think that man's struggle doesn't really matter unless he's called to march into the fires of Mordor. And what we find with models, in particular good dads, is that man's struggle to move into the gates of Mordor usually looks like working a nine to five, And then going home with enough margin in the tank to be emotionally, spiritually, and physically present with a wife and with his kids. And the Bible, the Bible does both things beautifully at the same time. The Bible invites us into the epic and the ordinary. Because men are called to face dragons, but the way in which men are called to fight dragons looks like the ordinary trenches of adult life where we give our lives away for the blessing of others. So take your Bible, Judges chapter six. I wanna start by giving you the context. Judges is a really powerful book of the Bible if you wanna see what sin leads to. The book of Judges is described in Judges as this time in the life of Israel where there was no king. There was no king. And every person did what was right in their own eyes. And the chaos of that rebellion is the children of Israel rejected God as king, and as they pursued what they thought would be freedom, is described really powerfully in Judges chapter 6. Let me read it to you. Here's what happens. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and they would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And they would leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. Okay, listen to me. This is not just the description of a particular moment in ancient history. It is that. But this is also a description of what's happened due to sin as human beings believe three lies. All right, the first lie that we're all prone to believe is that we would find true advancement and flourishing out from under the authority of God. That's the lie that Adam and Eve believed, that we would do a better job being God than God. And what this describes is that out from under the authority of God, instead of resulting in evolution for human beings, advancement, more flourishing, human beings in sin get dehumanized. We get reduced. Human beings are not made to live in dens like wild animals. Human beings are not made to live in caves. In fact, Genesis describes the high, the high calling on men and women as being viceroys or regents that rule the earth under the authority of God. 
And what we find is that when we trade the authority of God, loving obedience to him and his will and his way, instead of human beings maximizing their potential, we get reduced and dehumanized and we start behaving as if we were animals. We live lives in dens and in caves. In addition, we're tempted to believe the lie that we'll be more free if we reject his authority. The authority of God seems restrictive. We can believe the religious lie that to say yes to God is to say no to pleasure or no to joy. That to obey God is to live a life of drab, boring, grudging obedience. Well, this is a reminder that when we say yes to sin and no to God, instead of resulting in more freedom, what happens is bondage and slavery. These people get reduced and then they get enslaved. They get oppressed and they get beaten and destroyed by the enemies of God. And then thirdly, this is a reminder that we believe that we could be more fruitful apart from God. But when we turn from God, instead of being more fruitful, the land becomes barren and desolate. Lack takes place. And what I want you to see today, what I want you to see today is that the heart of this message and the heart of the work of Jesus is to meet us in our rebellion and to call us back into reality where we receive the good, amazing rule of a heavenly father who defines ultimate reality because he is ultimate reality. What happens in Judges chapter 6, verse 6 is really good news. It's not the kind of good news that you might hear on Christian television, but it's good news nonetheless. It's the good news of disillusionment. Look what happens in verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here's what happens in this moment that's so powerful. In the midst of all of Israel's rebellion, God grants them this moment of clarity where they realize, hey, the rule of God is actually beautiful. It's for our good and it's for our joy. And it leads to this moment of sober humility and repentance where they cry out to God for rescue. One of my favorite things about our church, and I love Frontline, I'm aware of all the ways that we're broken and messed up, but I'm so thankful for what God's done in our church. And one of the things I love about this church is that since day one, we've had a really robust community of people in recovery. We got men and women that have hit straight up rock bottom. And in that place of desperation, our friends that have hit rock bottom serve as a prophetic example to all of us of getting to the end of yourself and realizing that you're powerless to change things without intervention. That's a gift that we all need. And for so many of us, we can maintain a certain level of comfort and respectability in the world. Like the bottom hasn't fallen out to the place that it fell out in Judges chapter six, and we're still left with the illusions that we're doing quite fine without the rule of Jesus. And what I wanna say before we go any further today is if you find yourself in a place where you thought you would get more freedom and more fulfillment and more joy and more life apart from the living God, you don't have to wait for an altar call or for the Lord's Supper or for the end of this service to humble yourself and do what they did, to cry out to God. And here's what's amazing. When people humble themselves, God moves to them and he doesn't rub their nose in their sins and their mistakes. We serve a father that actually runs towards prodigals when they come to their senses. Now, Here's what happens next. This is really beautiful. In the midst of their disillusionment and crying out to God, there's gonna be something that's really interesting and it's kind of counterintuitive. Here's what God's gonna do. 
God is going to move to them with a capital S Savior, a capital S Savior, and God is at the same time going to raise up a lowercase s Savior. And this happens starting in verse 11. Let me read it to you. Now the angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon, after looking behind him to see who the angel was talking to, said this, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us up into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him, and he said, Go in this might of yours. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Because my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Okay, let me, let me try to unpack these two characters. The first Savior, the capital S Savior, is the angel of the Lord. And almost all Old Testament theologians agree that these encounters with the angel of the Lord are not just encounters with a run-of-the-mill angel. This is the pre-incarnate Son of God. This is the Son of God moving, and we see in the text that there's moments in which this encounter with the angel of the Lord is an encounter with God himself as Gideon responds to him by calling him Lord. This is, this is a moment where the Son of God is moving near to rescue. And it prefigures like all the Old Testament and points to the moment in history when time itself is pregnant to the full in which God stepped into human history through his son Jesus to intervene in all the ways that we've broken creation. To bear our sin. To face the enemies we couldn't defeat, sin, Satan, and death. To sacrifice his life for his beloved, to be a rescuer, to be moved with love and compassion in his confrontation with evil. And then something really interesting happens in Gideon's life that's a picture of what Jesus does when people receive him. Gideon has nothing in his story that singles him out as particularly special, right? Like we don't have background that he was a brilliant warrior or a great leader. In fact, what we have in this story is that Gideon's just kind of a beat-down, average Joe, run-of-the-mill guy. He's hiding in a wine press, which would have been incredibly dirty work. He's threshing wheat in the middle of a hole, meaning he's covered in dirt and debris. He probably has wheat husks in his eyes. He's matted with sweat because there's no breeze. His father's an idolater. He hasn't showed him how to walk in the ways of God. He's living in fear. He's of the smallest, most insignificant family in Israel, and he's the weakest, youngest, and most unimportant person in that family. And the angel of the Lord does something really amazing. He speaks to this man in his weakness and frailty, and he tells him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then he tells him in verse 14 that he's to go in this might of his and save Israel from the hands of Midian. Do I not send you? Now I want to do two things, and both things are important. The first thing is less important, but it's important that we name it in our cultural moment. The first thing I want you to see is that this is in part a picture 
of the common grace calling on all men as image bearers of God. The image of God in men and women is marred and twisted because of sin, but it remains nonetheless. And when God calls Gideon, there's part of this story that's a reminder that no matter how weak we are, there is strength in the life of a man that God has implanted there for the blessing and benefit of others. That there's ways in which God holds civilization together in part through the indispensable dispensability of men. And it's worth holding together through the indispensability of women as life givers. And what we find is that through sinful and fallen men, God does all kinds of things to restrain evil and work for the common good. There are men right now doing dirty and dangerous jobs all over the world that point to men as image bearers that reflect the saving heart of God. There's men in the Gulf of Mexico doing things that are really risky so that we can be warm and fed. There's roughnecks doing things in the field so that we can be taken care of. There's policemen and soldiers and sailors and farmers, and the list goes on and on. Part of what I want you to see today is that we we live in a moment where we're so anemic in our view of what it means to be men that we can't even celebrate the fact that much of what's good in society is built on the strength of men that are willing to sacrifice. And it's particularly troubling, it's particularly troubling to figure out how to raise boys in a world where we can't recognize and honor the indispensable dispensability of men. One Catholic writer put it like this. He said, the boy today is taught not that he's dispensable. All brave and true men have agreed to become dispensable. He is taught that he is unnecessary. And that is quite a different thing. Hey, part of this story is a reminder from God that even though you might feel weak and anemic and the least of your house with nothing to offer, simply by nature of being an image bearer of God as a man, there is strength inside of you that the world needs. But we mustn't stop there because there's something more powerful. There's something bigger. There's something supernatural. This is not a story primarily about common grace. This is a story about the miraculous intervention of God who calls into being things that don't exist. In the beginning, before God spoke, God was all that there was. There was no matter to work with, no light to work with, and into the void, and even to use the term void is misleading because a void paints a picture of something, God in his perfection spoke. And the Bible tells us that out of the word of God, everything that exists came into being out of nothing. God speaks and it happens. And then in the midst of the chaos of creation, the disorder of creation, God begins to speak and out of disorder comes order. The light and the dark are separated. The land and the sea is separated. And as God speaks and crafts order into creation, what we find, what we find is that his word doesn't return void. His word is mighty and it's powerful and it creates. And what we find, listen, is that Jesus Christ, the capital S Savior, is the word of God incarnate. Jesus speaks and he calls things into being that didn't exist. And when Jesus engages the man Gideon, a man that's weak and insecure and frail, that doesn't think that he has anything to offer, and he looks him in the eye and he calls him, oh, mighty man of valor, what 
the Son of God is doing in that moment is giving an identity and a commissioning to the man Gideon. He's given him something that Gideon didn't have. Gideon in his poverty is about to be given a gift of grace as the angel of the Lord speaks and something new happens. And what I want you to see, brothers, what I want you to see so desperately, what I'm praying that you see at the depth of your soul is that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, if you've trusted in him, he's spoken into your life a new identity that has commissioned you And I get there's baggage. I get there's failures. I get that many of us come from broken homes. I get that there's shame and insecurity. I understand all that. But the word of the living God has spoken in Jesus and he's declared that you're sons. And he's commissioned you to go in the might of Jesus and to do the work as a lowercase s savior that reflects Jesus. You, like Jesus, have evil to confront. You, like Jesus, have a beloved in peril. You, like Jesus, have sacrifices to make. And I think I would fail you if I didn't go so far as to say, there are things that Jesus wants to do for this church and for your wife and for your kids that he will do through you, through you. The angel of the Lord could have destroyed the armies of Midian in an instant, In an instant, he could have called down fire from heaven and destroyed the enemies of God, but here's what he does. He calls a son to share in the beautiful assignment because you know what? Jesus came to restore what was broken in the fall. And the calling, the calling to lay down lives as men of courage and strength is completely restored in the finished work of Jesus that commissions you, to live a life of courage for the benefit of others and strength that you give away. And I understand, I understand that that's a lot to swallow. And I don't know your family of origin or your story, but I've heard enough stories in this room and I've done enough work with my own story to know that sometimes that new name is really hard to swallow. So let me give you a few things to think about as we get to a close today. Three things, three things about courage, and strength, my brothers. Number one, please understand that it's the presence of God that is your strength. It's the presence of God that is your strength. Gideon objects, points to how weak and insignificant he is, and the angel of the Lord says this, verse 16, but I will be with you, but I will be with you. The pattern of God calling people throughout the Old Testament and the New is a pattern of people that are unqualified for the task, that are in way over their heads, being called to something that they can't do on their own. Moses, who struggled with a speech impediment, was called to speak to the most mighty man in the world, Pharaoh. He's terrified, and God says, but I will be with you. Joshua is called to pick up where Moses left off and to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And in the midst of all of his fears and insecurities, God says, I will be with you. And Jesus, after the resurrection, he appears to his disciples that are terrified. And in his resurrection appearance, he gives them an amazing commission to go into all the world with the gospel to preach the good news to all creation and to teach men and women to obey all that he's commanded. That's a big job, a big task. It's way above our pay grade. But then he says, I will be with you. 
The source of your strength as a man is not your ability to do it on your own. In fact, that's a lie of the world. The source of your strength as a man, your ability to stand courageously and sacrificially for the benefit of others is rooted and grounded in the fact that you are not alone. You're not alone. In the moments where you're terrified because to step into loving your wife will require vulnerability and risk and you don't know if you have what it takes, Jesus is with you. The places that God's called you to lead out at work and at home, Jesus is with you. And the beauty of this is that in your weakness, his strength is manifest. And please understand that it's really good news that he's with you because the place he's going to take you will be incredibly dangerous. Hear me. Every single time Jesus calls any man anywhere, it's a place of risk, always. He will call you to a dangerous place where you have to risk your reputation to trust that your reputation before God and him is unshakable. Jesus will call you at times to risk being fired by doing the right thing at work. He'll call you to risk at times being rejected, being slandered, being falsely accused. And all throughout the history of the church, there's times where Jesus is not even afraid to call people into the place of death to trust him. And the paradox here is really amazing. The most dangerous place in the world is where Jesus will call you, but it's also, at the very same time, the safest place in the world because it's where he is. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not war, not famine, not persecution, not even death. So brothers, the courage that you need is not found in puffing out your chest and in working up bravado. The courage is found in realizing that Jesus Christ is with you and he's commissioned you and he's called you to give your life away, to not protect your life, but to lay down your life because that looks like Jesus. This leads to the second thing. Fear and insecurity don't just disappear. Um, This is good news. If you've been following Jesus for a while and you expected that receiving the new identity and commission to follow Jesus would would immediately erase all of your insecurities, doubts, and unbelief, the story of Gideon is really good news for you because even after this encounter with the angel of the Lord, even after being given a new identity and a new commissioning, Gideon really struggles to believe, and three times in chapter six, he asks the angel of the Lord for signs, for signs. And he even says at one point to the angel of the Lord, if what you've said is true, then would you please do this weird stuff with the fleece that I'm going to lay out? Hey, listen, I love that because as a follower of Jesus, even this week in trying to lead in and love and serve you guys with God's word, there's so many fears and so many insecurities. What we find in the life of Gideon is that the angel of the Lord, the living God, is patient in the midst of those fears and insecurities. He moves towards Gideon and Gideon moves towards him. The deeper work of courage is not being a man without fear. Like on, on this side, On this side of glory, there's going to be fear in your chest. As deeply as we've been marred by the world, as deeply as our sins have shaped us, and as deeply as the sins of others have shaped us, there will be profound insecurities. But listen, those are the places where men of God are called to not ask for the kind of signs that Gideon asked for, 
but to come and remember that God's ultimate sign of his love and favor was given in a son, Jesus Christ. And to open his word and to be with brothers and to stand with the people of God and to rehearse the reality that he's gonna keep his word because he's already kept his word. That he's with us and not against us. That he's for us, that he's forgiven us, that he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's a lot of places where men will experience profound fear and insecurity, not the least of which is trying to move towards a wife that's an immortal image bearer of the most high God. It's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to try to take the words of scripture serious that we're to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. It's a fearful thing. It's a thing that will frequently include failure. Parenting, my goodness. God creates children He's the one that knits them together in their mother's womb. He's the one that orders their days. And then he entrusts them to sinful moms and dads to shape them and to send them into the world like arrows. What a fearful thing. What a glorious thing. And and if you have little kids, you might not have figured out yet that you, despite your best efforts, will not get it all right. And then we'll need the intervention of God to fix the stuff that you screwed up. And yet, even in the midst of that, here's what we find. Our fears and our insecurities become places where we're invited to meet with the living God and to experience transformation, to trust him. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is strength put into action for the benefit of others in the midst of fear. Finally, number three, close with this. This is also really good news. A life of courage and strength starts small and close to home. It starts small and close to home. This is my favorite part of the whole story of Gideon, chapter six, verse 25. I love this. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take a second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Ashtoreth that you cut down. Look at verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and he did as the Lord God told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Ah, I love this. Listen, before Gideon goes out to engage the armies of God or the enemies of God, the Midianites, there's a battle that's way more quiet and way closer to home. It's simply breaking with his father's idolatry and doing something really risky in his backyard. And for so many of us, brothers, the ideal, the big, the epic, Marvel movies, war movies, fantasizing about climbing mountains, the things that people will celebrate and clap for, those things can become profound excuses that prevent us from the ordinary obedience of cultivating strength by doing little things in our backyard that make a big difference. Strength is built slowly over time. Um, When my son was little, uh, he was getting into sports 
And I don't know if this is good parenting or bad parenting, but I couldn't imagine spending all day Saturday watching my son do sports that I don't understand and that I hate. Um, and no offense to baseball, like I know Corey Ferencamp's a big baseball guy. I just can't get into baseball. It's so epically boring to me. I'm just not smart enough to get it. So my son told me one day that he was trying to decide between baseball and wrestling. And I was like, buddy, wrestling is a great sport. It's a great sport. So my little boy, he was around five or six, cute little guy. He goes to wrestling practice for a month and it's just fun. There's little boys hanging out, learning some stuff. It's mostly chaotic. And then the first, the first wrestling tournament comes and we go to the fairgrounds. And I don't know if you know wrestling culture in the state of Oklahoma, but it is bananas. It's a cult. It's a cult. And all these little boys are savages with mullets. And most of them have been wrestling since the time that they were a fetus. It's crazy. So starting at five years old, he was already behind the gun. And the first match gets posted. We show up. We show up to the mat. And this kid walks out. And he's clearly confident. He has wrestled before. And Elijah's just excited because he's about to play wrestling. And they square up. They go toe-to-toe, the ref blows the whistle, and this kid comes in with a bit of a cheap shot cross face and just obliterates Elijah's nose. I, I know. <laughs> and Elijah looks at me. He doesn't even engage the fight. He stops immediately, looks at me with tears in his eyes, like, Father, why have you betrayed me? Like, have you brought me into this wilderness to kill me? And... <laughs> As he was looking at me, the other little boy shot on him, took him down, and pinned him in like 20 seconds. It was, it was not pretty. Well, after, after the match, Elijah's crying. He's embarrassed. He feels bad. His nose hurts. And his coach, he's a buddy of mine who sits up here pretty often, Coach Shelby, he walks up to Elijah and he says, hey, Elijah, it's okay, man. This happens to every single person at their first wrestling tournament. And one of two things happens to all those people. They either quit wrestling or they become wrestlers. Now, don't get twisted and send me emails about using contact sports as an illustration. If you have that email, send it to jreiner at frontlinechurch.com. Because you can also experience resistance, similar resistance in learning to work with wood or reading Dostoevsky or getting rejected by a good woman or just showing up to a job you don't like. But here's the point. The point is... Courage and resilience, courage and strength is built in those tiny little moments throughout a man's life with Jesus where you get popped in your nose and you simply do the simple right thing that Jesus has called you to do. It's little and it's small and nobody sees it. We think that we would start being like David and engaging the huge warrior Goliath. But David's story of being a warrior didn't start with Goliath. It started being out in the field and one day building up the, the chops to fight a lion and then a bear. To be a man of courage, to be a man of strength, is to grow in the little things that aren't going to be seen that actually build you into a man of substance. Let me tell you a quick story before I pray for you. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's this great story of a general named Naaman. Naaman's an important guy. Naaman's a powerful guy. And Naaman's a guy that has leprosy. And he hears that there's a prophet in Israel and he wants to be healed of his leprosy. So he goes to talk to Elisha, expecting that Elisha's going to give him some epic quest so that he might be healed 
of his disease. And Elisha tells him to do something really simple. He says, go to the Jordan and bathe seven times and you'll be cleansed. It's not epic, it's not important, and the Jordan River wasn't a fancy river. It was muddy and it was dirty. The Bible tells us that when Naaman heard this, he went away angry. And he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and he would stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And then he mentions the rivers of his hometown and he says, aren't those waters better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And he turned and he went off in a rage. And the Bible tells us that one of his servants came up to him and he says this, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you wash and be cleansed? Hey, I think a lot of recovering what it means to be men that reflect Jesus and sacrificially laying down our lives for the beloved, for our families, for our church, for our city. I, I think so much of the growth we need as men that are called to lay down our lives in courage and strength is not found in waiting for the epic quest or the big thing. It's found in the little ordinary disciplines of walking with Jesus and stuff that nobody's gonna clap for you for doing. It's about learning to put your face in this book. And like, you know the most courageous act of warfare that a father and a husband can possibly engage in? The Bible tells us it's prayer. It's prayer. It's praying for your wife and praying for your kids. Do you know how you cultivate as a single man the capacity to one day love and serve a wife like Jesus loves and serves the church? By first of all, being with Jesus and being with brothers, and then simply leaving the ladies that you encounter better off than what you found them. It's the simple things that we tend to not do because we want something epic, sexy, and fast. So my prayer for you brothers and for me is that God would call us and commission us and anoint us to follow the Savior, capital S, into the work of being little saviors. The simple acts of courage and obedience that are given for the blessing and benefit of others even when they're costly. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you for the young men in this room. <clears throat> and I pray that both things in scripture would capture their imagination. The glorious, epic reality of your cosmic struggle with darkness and the simple models of faithful dads and faithful pastors and faithful friends that just did the little things to love and serve the people around them. God, I pray that you would bless the men of your church to receive your calling. Think of C.S. Lewis's words, Father, about the absurdity of creating empty, castrated men and then demanding that they be fruitful. So Lord, would you create men in our church with chess, men with affection for you, men that are caught and captured by your love, men that hear repeatedly the identity that's theirs through the work of Jesus as a father says, you're my son. You get to share in my work. And God, places where um, 
Places where me and my brothers are asking other people to carry our freight, our wives, our kids, our church, and we call it being enlightened. I pray that you would forgive us. Hey, Father, I ask that you would forgive me for every place in my life where I ask my wife to carry freight that's mine and then hide behind that somehow being modern. God, I pray that you would raise up the women of our church to just do warfare for the men of our church, to fight for them, to pray for them. God, we ask that you would do a deep work of revival Um, Hey, Father, one of the things that I want to see at Frontline is not just clever missional engagement in the city, but just the simple work of being counterformed to follow Jesus as men and women, to be salt and light. Father, how powerful would it be? What a gift we could give Oklahoma City if uh, single men just related to women in honor and respect, leaving them better off than they found them. Father, what a testimony to your glory would it be if uh, husbands weren't entitled and selfish, but if they laid down their lives like Jesus. Father, how powerful would it be if we didn't expect our schools or our church to be the primary place of the theological and moral formation of our kids, but if dads came alongside moms and if parents did that work. So God, help us. We, we need so much help today. Move in the room, apply your word where it needs to be applied and bring freedom. God, every place that uh, we've tried to find flourishing and freedom in rebellion against you, let us have a Judges 6, verse 6 moment where we come to our senses. We love you. Jesus, you're our king, you're our captain. We have no ground to stand on apart from you. Make us like you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen.